For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, we've been studying this letter that was written 2,000 years ago. There was this really young group of Christians in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And the guy who started this, this group, this church, was a guy named Paul. And what we've got here in the book of 1 Corinthians in our Bibles is a copy of a letter he sent to them after they'd only been Christians for three, four, maybe five years, where he's trying to encourage them in their faith, but he's also trying to address and help them through a number of problems that he had heard about in their group, in addition to answering some questions that they had sent to him. And um, the theme of this book has been the wisdom of God. There's the, there's the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of the world says, take what you can get, put yourself first. This is what we grow up learning. We're steeped in this stuff. The wisdom of God says, the last shall be first. If you want to save your life, you need to lose your life and give your life away to other people. It says that <clears throat> it's better to give than to receive. And so a theme in this book, he's just been talking about how in every area of their lives, they still were clinging to the wisdom of the world, which is putting me first. And he was trying to help them see how the wisdom of God applies in all these different areas. So tonight we're going to see another area where this applies. He's in a section of the book where he's been giving some of the greatest teaching in all of the Bible about what is Christian community. And, you know, he's compared the Christian community to like a body. He says, when you become a Christian, you are connected not just to Christ, who's the head, but to all these other Christians, and you have a, a spiritual connection with each other. We are members of one another. And just like the different parts in your body need to do things that benefit the other parts, that's what we're like. And he says, you've each been given spiritual gifts, special abilities, unique ways that you're equipped to serve, to love other people. And he says, you need to use those gifts, but they were using them selfishly. They were using them to show off. And so, you know, when, when the church gets together, when Christian community gets together, what does God want to happen? Well, we learn about God. We study his word. We grow stronger in our love relationship with him. That's one thing God really wants for us. We also practice showing God's love to one another. What a great place to learn to do that. We also are trying to create a place that's welcoming to non-Christians, helping them see what is God like, what he wants to give them. We don't want to make new people feel like an outsider or like you have to come and learn our language, our jargon. Um, no, we, we want to be as accessible as possible, as Paul said, becoming all things to all people. So, so people can hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that he offers forgiveness, a free gift through his death on the cross, not by works. And as we do the first three things on that list, we're strengthened in our faith. We go back to the rest of our lives full of love and joy and peace. And we're strengthened. We're built up. That's the result of a good home church meeting right there. Now, when the Corinthians got together, they were coming together a little bit differently, as you might expect. They thought it was a chance to show off my spiritual gifts. I'm such a good speaker. Oh, look at me. I can speak in these, you know, kind of crazy foreign languages that I've never learned before. It sounds really cool. It feels really good to me. They were seeking some kind of spiritual high. I just want to go and get what I can get. I want to feel good. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make myself feel good, even if that means taking from the other people there. You know, apparently, and Jesus taught it's better to give than to receive. They were thinking it's better to receive than it is to give. 
And maybe I'll think about giving, but only when I feel like all of my needs are completely satisfied, which is a recipe for disaster. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians today who are taking the same approach. And they're really missing out on what God wants. And so we need to think about the wisdom of God and spiritual gifts tonight. Paul's message he's going to give them is this. Look, guys, do you want to have a great night at home, church? Do you want it to be awesome? Then start using your gifts to strengthen and serve the other people there. This is the outworking of Jesus' teaching, that the last will be first. You've got to, to save your life, you've got to lose it. It's better to give than to receive. You've learned the joy of giving love and you receive from God as you do that and you become more like him. And that's how you get that love and joy and peace. That's what maybe you're missing in your spiritual life. And so he says, first of all, in this chapter, our goal when we get together is to strengthen others. And you're going to see this as a theme over and over again throughout this chapter. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, let love be your highest goal. That is the law of love, the most important thing in the Christian life. But he says, you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives. He's like, he's not against spiritual gifts. He says, spiritual gifts are awesome. You should seek to cultivate those. You should seek to use whatever gifts God has given you in whatever way you can, whenever you can. That's an evaluation of a good night. When I come home at the end of a, a night of fellowship and I think, I got to love somebody. I got to build somebody up in some way. And when I come home and realize I didn't do that, I admit to God I was wrong, and I pray you'd help me to get back on track next time. So he says, desire the special abilities the Spirit gives. He said in 1 Cor 12, 7, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. And so we got these different gifts, these different abilities, and he says you should use them to love each other. But these special abilities the Spirit gives, he's actually going to zero in on two of them in this passage here. Two spiritual gifts that apparently were causing some trouble in the church at Corinth. And the first one is a gift called the gift of prophecy. Now, what is the gift of prophecy? Good question. This is not just predictive prophecy. You know, when we think prophecy, we think of our recent study in the book of Daniel, where you see these prophets predicting all these awesome future events. They did that. Prophets, prophets can still do this today. But... We need to think of prophecy as something more all-encompassing. It's the ability to speak a message from God. You know, we might take a scripture that people have heard before, but we might say, I think this really applies to your life in this way. I think this really applies to our group in this way. And a prophet, somebody that has the gift of prophecy, just has this, it's, it's like this, um, just this ability to get past your defenses and to speak right to the heart. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's an incredible experience. You know, it might happen while listening to a Bible teaching. Have you ever had this? Where you show up at a Bible teaching and you're sitting there and as soon as the teacher starts talking, you feel like this person is talking right to me. This is the very issue I've been wrestling with. You know, who told this guy I was coming? <laughs> who told him about my problems and told him to bring him up in the teaching tonight? Who has been reading my personal diary? Who has been uncovering the thoughts of my heart? And there's times where I've sat in a meeting like this with tears running down my face because I felt like God was speaking so directly to me and I felt so loved by him 
that he loved me enough to speak a word straight to me. It's like there was no one else in the room. I couldn't believe it. So it's a pretty useful gift to have if you're a Bible teacher. And uh, it's a pretty awesome experience. But it, it's not just the teacher that can do this. You know, there might be an experience after the teaching is over where you're sitting around talking with people and somebody begins to bring something up in your life and you just feel like I'm seeing this in a way I haven't seen it before or God is finally opening my eyes to something. I remember a period of my life where I went about 18 months of some of the most intense suffering I've ever felt in my life. A lot of it caused by myself, by my own um, stubbornness, by my own critical nature. And... Um, I was talking, I heard, sat into this awesome teaching where I felt like the teacher was speaking to me about the thing that I was wrestling with. And then I turned and started talking with a friend of mine. And he, and he listened to me for a while and then he just began to speak truth after truth. And as he spoke, I just saw God opening up and unfolding. He was saying, this is what I've been trying to teach you for the past two years. And this is the key to ending this suffering that you're going through right now. I, I don't think I was ready for it until that point. Sometimes with our suffering, that's what has to happen. We have to suffer for a while before we're ready to listen. But I felt like that was a prophetic word, a word straight from God, and I'm so thankful for it. There's also times where someone else, other than the teacher, might share during the teaching. A lot of our home churches, we, it's very interactive. Other people can share things. Even here at a large meeting, we, we open up the floor afterward. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've put all this work into my teaching. You know, I've wrestled with the scriptures. I've wrestled with different commentaries. I've interpreted it. I've thought about how to apply it. I've prayed over it. I've crafted this beautiful PowerPoint. <laughs> And then I get to the end of the teaching and I say, does anybody have any comments? And then my wife raises her hand. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I just thought of this during your teaching. And rattles off a little 30 seconds of something or other. And everybody in the room's like, whoa. <laughs> Afterward, people are like, man, I just really felt like God spoke to me through your wife sharing there after the teaching. <laughs> And I'm like, wow, great. <laughs> so happy for both of you. <laughs> she put a lot of work into that sharing, you know. <laughs> People are like, whoa, you're going to teach our CT next month? I love your wife's sharing. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I'm there too. <laughs> Speaking a message from God is something, it's a supernatural event. This, when we get together as the body of Christ, we're not just following some formula and going through the motions. This is a supernatural event. When you get several hundred people in a room, every single one of you who's a Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How can you get that many people together and not have something supernatural happen? This is, this is what our, our lives should be characterized by, is encountering God. Every time we get together, God is speaking. God is moving. It's dynamic. This, this is what makes for a good home church meeting. When we use our gifts in spiritual ways according to the wisdom of God. So he's going to bring up prophecy. And he's going to contrast that with another gift. 
the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, what is this gift? Well, it appears on the very first day that the church begins in the book of Acts chapter two, there was a, an event where Jesus, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he spent 40 days talking to his dudes, appearing to men and women, teaching them all. And then he ascends into heaven and he says, wait in Jerusalem, because I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. And so here they are 50 days after the cross and they're all, pray, they're all praying together and all of a sudden the Spirit, boom, it comes down. It indwells them. They go outside. There's a huge festival. There's pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire there for the festival of Pentecost. Jewish travelers. These people go out. They begin speaking in all these different languages. The languages of the people who are visiting Jerusalem. A guy from, you know... The Africa from, from Rome and beyond is sitting there hearing this person. He's speaking not just my language, but the very dialect, the very inflections that we use in my village back home. What is going on here? There's something supernatural. They're hearing the message of Christ in their own language. And they all rush to Peter, and he delivers a, a very famous sermon in, in the common language, Aramaic, and leads 3,000 people to Christ on the first day of the church. We see the gift of tongues show up again. You know, Acts 2 is when the Jews come into the, come into the church. Acts 10, we see this huge um, inrush of Gentiles. They speak in tongues when they become Christians. And we also see it from some other guys in Acts 19. There's only three occurrences in Acts. Um, and then you look through the rest of the New Testament, and the only other place it's found is right here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And so we don't really know that much about the gift of tongues. We have a couple examples, and we have, a, we have some teaching here. It looks like um, there's such a thing as tongues of men and of angels, Paul refers to. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a human dialect. It could be you know, some sort of otherworldly angelic vocabulary and syntax or some sort of code. Um, but it's got to be communicating something because it's called a language. Uh, but it may not be a language that exists here on earth. It is, tongues are found outside of Christianity. You see this in shamanism where the shaman will go into a trance and will just kind of spit out a, a string of, um, almost stream of consciousness syllables. And um, in Corinth, the uh, pagan religions, some of the Greco-Roman religions, including ones found here at Corinth, also had tongue speaking. And so some of these people are coming from religion with tongue speaking and they're moving over into Christianity and they're, just, they're, they're speaking in tongues now as Christians. And it was, looks like it was coming to dominate some of their meetings. It looks like they're, they're used differently in public versus in private. In public, Paul's going to say later, he's going to put some pretty heavy restrictions on it, including that it needs to be interpreted. It's, it's to communicate something, a message, a rational message to the whole group, if you're going to use it in public. In private, though, he doesn't seem to really have any restrictions on it. It almost seems to be like a prayer language. It's, it's like a non... It's, it's like I'm not, um, I'm not even sure what I'm saying, but I'm connecting with God in some way, almost like, like straight emotion communication or something like that. It's, it's a little bit unclear. Like I said, there's not that much on it. Um, but, um, you know, I, I have talked to people that uh, have spoken in tongues before. I myself do not have this gift as far as I know. I've there's times where I've been alone and I've been like, okay, God, do I have the gift of tongues? And I've been like, <laughs> and I was like, that was not spiritual. 
Maybe at some point I'll get it. I don't know. Um, I, I, I have one friend of mine who's spoken in tongues exactly once in his life. He said he was just praying by himself. He felt like he wanted to communicate with God, and it was, it was almost like words. What he wanted to communicate was, was beyond words. He was having such an awesome like, time with the Lord, and so he just found himself speaking in a tongue. Doesn't know what he said. It's never happened again. I know of another woman who um, came, came to Christ as a teen, and her parents were like, you are never going back to that church again. And um, they, they actually were serious. They meant it. She basically was kept in isolation from other Christians for more than a year after she became a Christian. And here she was, just, just weeks into knowing the Lord, trying to talk to him, asking him for some sort of support here. She was suffering. She found herself speaking in tongues to God. Continued to do that right up until the moment where she was able to go back out to uh, home church when she turned 18, and um, apparently she only needed it for a time. I know other people who've had it their whole spiritual lives. They use it privately, typically. And so, um, speaking in tongues and prophecy, right? We have two gifts here. Prophecy is clear, intelligible, rational, communicates something of real value to the entire group. Tongues feel good to me, and don't really do much for anybody else. Which one do you think the Corinthians were focused on? The one that feels good to me, and who cares what other people think about it? Or the one that's good for everybody and builds up the whole body? Yeah, that's right, it's the tongues. They were into tongues because they felt good, and that was good for me, and it sort of was, they were sort of using this gift in accordance with more of their old way of thinking. This feels good to me, and I don't care how it looks to anybody or what other people think. Which one do you think Paul wants them to focus on? That's right, prophecy. He wants to, he's not going to forbid tongues, and he's going to talk positively about tongues, but he's going to talk much more positively about prophecy. He says, if you, want to look, if you want to go after something, go after prophecy. That's why he says, desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you'll be talking only to God since people won't be able to understand you. You'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. But one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, comforts them. Yeah, it's sort of the difference between speaking to God and speaking to other people. And he says that's better because you're building up, you're strengthening the other people there. That's going to be good for them and good for you. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally. It's good for me. It builds me up. But one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. Yeah, it looks like the gift of tongues, it might be maybe the only spiritual gift that is intended more to build me up than to build other people up. The other gifts have more of a one and another focus. Strengthen the entire church. I wish you could all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish you could all prophesy. For prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues unless someone interprets what you're saying so the whole church will be strengthened. So he does make a public use of tongues exception. He does allow them to do it in cases where there's somebody with the spiritual gift of interpretation. That's another spiritual gift. And so he says, our goal when we get together is to strengthen one another, to build one another up. But if we're gonna do that, the first requirement, he's, he's going to give two requirements. The first one is that 
You need to speak in a way that people can understand. Otherwise, how are you going to build people up? In Christianity, we don't leave our brains at the door, okay? We, it, it's not a non-rational communication. No, it's, it's very, it very much engages the mind. And it's as we're, we're built up in the mind, God's truth is what builds us up. That's what persuades us. That's what strengthens us in our faith. And so he says, you got to gotta speak in a way that's intelligible, that's understandable. Let's see what he says. He says, dear brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in unknown language, how would that help you? Let's say I think through your life and I just come up with the most, just a real word of encouragement. I know that you've been discouraged. And I come to you with this word of encouragement after home church and I give you this word of encouragement, except instead of giving it to you in, in the English language, which we both speak, I decide I'm gonna encourage you in French. <laughs> Paul says, how would that help you? You know, I come to you and I'm like, <laughs> bonjour, monsieur. You have been growing a lot lately. Oui, oui. See, unless you speak French, you have no idea what I just said. <laughs> and so how is that going to help you? No, we need to communicate in a way that people can understand. That means I open my mouth, I use words that they can hear, and I speak. And it's the difference between not being built up at all and being super encouraged. If I bring a revelation or some special knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. Yeah. He says, even lifeless instruments like the flute or the harp must play the notes clearly or no one will recognize the melody. Yeah, you know, music is not just grabbing a guitar and strumming. You know, there's certain ways that the notes need to be played for that to be a pleasant experience. Well, the bugler, if the bugler doesn't sound a clear call, how will the soldiers know they're being called to battle? So, you know, you're an ancient soldier, and all of a sudden you hear the trumpet blast three long, loud notes. And as a soldier, that doesn't do you any good unless you know what those notes are. You're sitting there, and you're like, does that mean attack? Does that mean retreat? The sounds only become useful when I know what they mean. And that's what language does for us. It enables us to make sounds that carry meaning with them. It's actually one of the incredible things about being made in the image of God. And it's incredible to see you know, a one and a two-year-old who are dropped into a, a room with people speaking a certain language and they just begin to pick up that language like you know, lasers burning into a CD or a DVD. It's awesome. The gift of language, the ability to communicate. Because we have a God that communicates. And part of... Spiritual community is communicating with each other in a way that builds each other up. It's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand, how will they know what you're saying? Good question. You might as well be talking into empty space. There are many different languages in the world, and every language has meaning. But if I don't understand a language, I'll be a foreigner to someone who speaks it, and the one who speaks it will be a foreigner to me. It's so frustrating if you've ever been to a foreign country where you just want to go to the bathroom, but you don't know how to say it in their language, and they don't know how to say it in your language. He says, we need to communicate in ways we can understand. The same is true for you. Since you're so eager to have the special abilities the Spirit gives, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. 
So anyone who speaks in tongues should pray also for the ability to interpret what's been said. Maybe you could pray that you would have the interpretation, or maybe you could pray someone else would have the interpretation. If I pray in tongues, my spirit's praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. Well, then what should I do? I'll pray in the spirit and also pray in words I understand. I'll sing in the spirit. I'll also sing in words I understand. If you praise God only in the spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? I was in a foreign country just a couple months ago where I did not speak the language. And you know, I'm sitting in a room with other Christians and they're singing songs and they're praying. And my translator is leaning over to me. He's explaining. Here's what this song is saying. Here's the verse of scripture they're singing. Here's what they're saying now in the prayer. Here's what they're saying now. It was so helpful. I felt like an outsider until I started getting the understanding. And then I really felt swept up in, in what was happening there. I felt like I was able to praise God along with them. And I felt myself growing closer to these people in a way that I simply couldn't have without this awesome translator, these awesome translators that we had. How can they join you? Or literally, it says, how can they say the amen when you're giving thanks when they don't understand what you're saying? What does it mean to say the amen? The word amen in Greek just means truly. It means yeah. It means right on. It means uh-huh. <laughs> He's like, you're sitting there, you're praying, and you're saying, God, I thank you for this, and I thank you for that. And when, when that happens, Paul's like, the other people, they need to have the chance to be like, amen, brother. Yeah. Yes. To, to come along with you and to affirm that. And we, when two or three, when multiple people, Jesus says, agree in prayer, that carries a power that even surpasses individual prayer. He says, you know, you might be giving thanks very well, but it won't strengthen the people who hear you. And they're sort of tuning out because they don't know what you're saying. This part here is pretty interesting because I think this also applies not just to tongue speaking, but also to, to group prayer. I wanted to make just a couple of points on this. You know, there are big differences, much like with tongues, there's differences between private prayer and prayer with other people. And a lot of people aren't aware of these differences. You know, for one, public prayers need to be a lot shorter. When I'm praying alone, I might pray 10, 20, 30, maybe more minutes, and it's me talking, listening to God, praying some more. But if I'm in a prayer meeting, it's only going to last 30 minutes. And there's 20 other people here. I better not pray for 30 minutes straight. That's not a prayer meeting. That's the, that's the me show. That's what Corinth had. And so we need to, I think, the larger the group, the shorter the prayers need to be as a general rule. Public prayers need to be a lot shorter than private prayers. And maybe you pray, maybe you, pray you know, several prayers of about five seconds each instead of one two-minute prayer meeting killer. Have you ever been at a prayer meeting where somebody just goes on and on and on? That's a good way to kill the meeting. Related to that, public prayers involve affirming the prayers of others. He said, how can they say the amen when they agree with your prayer if they can't understand you? And so one implication there is, you know, when I'm just, it's just me talking to God, I'm the one praying, I'm listening but when I'm in a group with other people praying, you know, I'm not just passive while somebody else is praying. I'm listening to what they're saying. I'm thinking if there's something I can add to that prayer. But a lot of times, I'm listening and I'm going, yes, Lord, yes. Oh, yes, I agree with that, Lord. Mm, yes, God, amen, Lord. 
You know, it's, it's these sorts of things we should be chiming in. And when you get a prayer meeting, you know, let's say there's 20 people there and one person's praying and everybody is, is silent, dead silent. Compare that with a meeting where this person's praying and six, seven, eight, nine people are like, yes, Lord, I agree with that. How different that is. In fact, that's a good principle in general at public meetings that I think we could use a lot more of around here is where you hear the teacher say something you agree with to say, yeah, amen? <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, in public prayers, you might restrict the scope of your prayer requests. You know, when it's just me praying, I might be really feeling burdened about my great aunt Mabel's enlarged goiter. I'm really worried about great aunt Mabel, Lord, and this enlarged goiter, and I pray for this doctor's appointment she has coming up, and I pray for strength for great uncle Charlie. And, um, okay, that's fine when it's just me, but if I'm in a group of 20 people and they don't know who great aunt Mabel is, they don't know great uncle Charlie, they don't even know what an enlarged goiter is. <laughs> you know, that might be a time where I, maybe I would save that prayer request for Maybe just me and my friend praying, maybe me and people that know Great Aunt Mabel. But we restrict the scope of our prayer request based on the people who are here, maybe even the purpose for this prayer meeting. You might have a prayer meeting focused on missions and one, a different one for outreach in your home church, and you might keep two things relatively separate. And so we restrict the scope of our prayer requests, and we pray loud enough for people to hear, because if there's... If there's something that kills a prayer meeting as much as long prayers, it's the, I love prayer. I love... Especially at CT, good Lord. <laughs> you know, the people on the other side of the room, they want to affirm your prayer, but they can't hear it. And they don't know, did you just say something crazy? Something I shouldn't affirm? Um, we need loud prayers, amen? Yeah. All right, good. Important, important qualifications. It's very related to this same issue here, though. The edification, strengthening the group, building up the group. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. <laughs> I don't know how he knew that. <laughs> so again, he's not down on tongues. Apparently, this is a thing for Paul as well. But in a church meeting, I'd rather speak five understandable words to help others than 10,000 words in an unknown language. Boy, that's, that's a serious prioritization there. He's like, if you could just rip off 100 words in a tongue for 100 home churches in a row and feel amazing, or at one of those 100 home churches, you could offer up a five-word point of sharing. He's like, I take the five-word point over all the tongue speaking that you're doing there because he understood the secret to contentment. Five understandable words better than 10,000 words in an unknown language. Dear brothers and sisters, he says, don't be childish in your understanding of these things. Yeah, it's very, the selfishness was kind of childish. Be innocent as babies when it comes to evil, but be mature in understanding matters of this kind. It's written in the scriptures. And he quotes Isaiah here. This one's a little hard to understand. I'll do my best. He says, Isaiah writes, Isaiah was a prophet, by the way, from like the 700s BC. He wrote a really long book in the Old Testament. Isaiah 28, 
11, he says, I'll speak to my own people through strange languages and through the lips of foreigners. But even then, they won't listen to me, says the Lord. All right, what is Isaiah talking about here? Look, God spoke through Isaiah to the Israelites in a language they could understand, and they just didn't listen. They ignored him. And so God's, and God threatened, I'm going to send in conquerors if you don't listen, and they ignored him. And so then he promised that he would send people they didn't understand, the Assyrians, to conquer them. And so when a whole bunch of Assyrians show up and they start speaking a language you don't understand, that's going to be a bad sign, especially when they're carrying swords and chains and things like that. And so, but it's not like when the Assyrians showed up that they started listening. He says, even then they won't listen. So it's not like the foreign speech helped them in any way. It just showed they were on the wrong team. That's all it said. And so why does he bring it up here? I think he's bringing it up here because what he's saying is, look, if a non-believer comes into your group and you speak in tongues, they're not going to know what you're saying. They're not going to know how to come to Christ. All they're going to know is they're different from me and maybe I should just leave. That's what they're going to conclude. And that's why he says speaking in tongues is a sign. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. A sign that doesn't communicate very much, but it's a sign. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. But even so, if unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your church meeting and they hear everyone speaking an unknown language, they'll think you're crazy. You ever been to a church like this where you're like, these people are crazy? Paul's like, we cannot have this situation. David Pryor comments on this word crazy. He says, the Greek words translated, you're mad, does not mean fit for the asylum, but under the influence of some spiritual force on par with those active in the mystery cults, some kind of occult power. In the Corinthian context, Paul means that the net result of believers all speaking in tongues in a time of worship is that the very people they're keen to win become convinced Christianity is just like any other mystery religion there into which they have to be properly initiated if they want to belong. They've not been initiated into the secret vocabulary and practices, therefore they leave. And he says, you know, we find ourselves wondering how many modern inquirers find similar habits equally off-putting in our own churches. Yeah, how should we structure our meetings? In a way that I like, but, but people who aren't Christians find weird? Should we use vocabulary and dress in a way that makes them feel super strange and like outsiders? Or... Should we try to be as welcoming as possible? Should we try to explain things, not assume that people grew up reading the Bible or have years of experience with it, but try to speak in such a way that we're talking so that the, the, the newest person here can understand what we're talking about. It's not as easy to do, but it, it takes some work and it's worth it. So understandability. Again, he's, he's, he's wrapping up his point. He says, if all of you are prophesying, and unbelievers are people who don't understand these things come into your meeting. They'll be convicted of sin and judged by what you say. And as they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed and they will fall to their knees and they will worship God, declaring God is truly here among you. These are people coming to Christ. That's what he's talking about. They're drawn to this because the message of Christ, the message that you're a sinner, that you deserve the judgment of God, but Christ died for sins. He came under judgment so you wouldn't have to. He offers forgiveness as a free gift. That's the kind of message that's going to resonate, and it won't resonate unless it's understandable. This is what we need. And so he says, let's summarize. 
When you meet together, one will sing, another one teaches. Another one tells some special revelation God's given. One speaks in tongues, another interprets what's said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. There's that same theme again. He's not saying you have to do all five of these things every time you get together, but he's saying when you guys get together, somebody might do this, somebody might do that. Whatever we're doing, however we're using our gifts, let's use them in such a way that we strengthen the entire body. We build up the body of Christ. That's what we're looking for here. And if, if you're going to strengthen the body, you've got to speak in a way that's understandable. But even that's not enough. Seeking to build up the body, speaking in a way that's understandable. He says one more thing here. You've also got to have orderliness. Again, think about it. If, if you and I both have a word of encouragement for this brother over here, and we're talking beforehand, we're talking about how we're both going to encourage this guy, and if I'm like, wait a minute. I know how we can save time and double the love here. After home church, let's corner this guy and then we'll both speak our words of encouragement at the exact same time. Is that gonna double the love? Double the edification? No, because two people speaking at the same time is, is chaos. It's nonsense. It's not going to build anybody up. And part of the problem at Corinth is everybody was like, my turn to talk. No, my turn to talk. No, my turn to talk. And I'm just talking anyway. I don't care that you're talking. That's what they had. I don't know if you've ever been around a group like that. It's kind of exhausting. Nobody listening. Everybody just wants to say the thing in my head because that's all I can think of. I just want to be heard. He says, you got to have orderliness. For one, in the area of tongues. He's given a couple areas here. He says, no more than two or three should speak in tongues. And they must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. So he says, let's limit it here. If you're, let's not do more than two or three, okay? Not that you have to do two or three, but no more than two or three. And if, if no one's present who can interpret, well, you just got to go with the Spirit's leading. doesn't matter. No, actually, he says, the people with tongues need to shut up. They must be silent in your church meeting and just speak in tongues to God privately. Use it in your own home. Hmm, that's interesting. You know, um, churches usually fall into one of two extremes in this area. They often do. Both fall short of what Paul is saying. Some say no one is ever allowed to speak in tongues. There's this argument we talked about a little bit when, I st when we studied 1 Corinthians 13 that, well, they needed tongues back during this time because they didn't have their New Testament yet. But now that the New Testament is here, God completely stopped giving any, uh, not just tongues, but any miraculous gifts at all. No one can do any miracles. No one can speak any in tongues anymore. And um, I mean, it's an interesting theory, but the support they cite is so flimsy. Like we talked about last time, it says, you know, when... When, when the perfect comes, tongues will cease. But then he goes on to talk about how that's when we'll know as we're fully known. He's talking about heaven. Apparently, there's no tongue speaking in heaven. But the thought that once the New Testament is done, there's no more tongues, it, just don't see it there. In fact, even at the end of this chapter, 1439, he says, do not forbid people from speaking in tongues. And that's exactly what this, this group called the cessationists teach. So I, I think they're wrong. I think it's an overreaction to some people maybe um, using the gifts of tongues in a selfish way. But Paul didn't go there when the Corinthians were using it in a selfish way.
On the other hand, some groups have no restrictions at all on the gift of tongues. And uh, this can also get pretty extreme. I got a short video here. So, you know, I'm not trying to like, I know some of us were laughing. I'm not trying to make fun of people or anything like that. But part of what I'm trying to do is show you that um, some of this can get kind of crazy. And I, I think these are well-meaning Christians, okay? I think in, in most of these cases. Um, and, you know, I, I know people that are Pentecostals and Charismatics and very sincere, good people, okay? Um, but I think, that, I think that some of the practices here when I look at passages like 1 Corinthians 14, I just don't see them lining up where we've, we've got every single person speaking in tongues all at once on cue in a congregation. That's a lot different than two or three and then one at a time with people interpreting. Um, you know, some even go so far as to say that you're not a real Christian unless you've spoken in a tongue and you're operating in the power of the flesh instead of in the power of the spirit. And so that, that actually tends to get, uh, you know, pretty divisive. Uh, pretty much all the major denominations have had splits along the lines of the kind of the charismatic Pentecostal lines at some point. And, um, and uh, I, I think, honestly, a lot of this sprang out of a, a lack of attention to the Holy Spirit and, bad, and not enough teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so it's kind of swung to another extreme here. And um, so, I, you know, I, believe, I totally believe in miraculous gifts for today. Um, but I think, you know, I also agree with Paul here, they need to be done with some order. And um, in part because of Paul's statement, you know, the non-believer comes in and they're like, this is, this is crazy. And uh, that's the experience of many when exposed to that sort of a thing. And so some of the guidelines, just a couple in any one meeting, um, one at a time, needs to be an interpretation. If there's no interpretation, let's just cool it and save it for another time. God hasn't provided interpretation. Another way we need to be orderly is with the prophets. He says, let two or three people prophesy. And let the others evaluate what is said. 
And so the prophets apparently were also talking over each other. He says, if someone's prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who's speaking must stop. So maybe people were like filibustering and just hogging the spotlight. And he's like, all right, you can sit down. Somebody else has something to say. He says, in this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak one after the other so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. And so, and he goes on to say, for, remember, people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and take turns. Yeah, when the spirit moves through someone, it's not in a way that's out of control. It's a way that's very in control. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. And finally, there was a group of women here at Corinth that was causing problems as well. He says, women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. <laughs> if they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it's improper for women to speak in church meetings. Amen? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's he talking about here? What is this? Out of nowhere here. Okay, one thing to keep in mind, he already gave instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 for how women should pray and prophesy. So he's assuming they're praying and prophesying at meetings. So why then would he say, and by the way, they can't pray or prophesy? That can't be what he's saying. That wouldn't make sense. Why would Paul contradict himself three chapters apart? What is happening here? Well, remember the context. You've got tongue speakers who are out of order and causing chaos at the meetings. Prophets who are out of order and causing chaos at the meetings. And now we come to women, and he's telling them the same thing. He's like, you guys need to cool it. And uh, you can't keep on speaking. It, it, it doesn't say you can't speak. It's, you can't keep on speaking. That's a present infinitive. And so there's got to be something to do with order in Corinth. And uh, the women here were speaking out of order. One possibility that's interesting could refer to practices adopted from the pagan cults in Corinth. Check out Catherine Kroger on this. She says, The worship of Sybil and Dionysus required the simultaneous use of diverse and unstructured sounds, and women in particular were swept along into an altered state of consciousness, kind of a trance of just shouting sounds out. Dionysus was known as the lord of the loud cry, the mad exciter of women. Their abandoned state of mind led to raving and uncontrolled actions as well as to ceremonial cries known as ululation. Even in more orderly cults, the cries of women were part of the ritual at properly appointed moments. And so the women were used to going to religious services and just either completely losing control and shouting like the tongue speakers or shouting at the appropriate moments. And Paul's like, no, none of the above. In fact, at Corinth, a temple used primarily by women, a series of plaques have been excavated. One is dedicated to the sacred shouts of women. In this vein, Paul asked whether observers might not consider the Corinthian congregation to be mad, probably a reference to the ritual madness of these cults rather than to insanity. Yeah, so it could be they were just importing the religious practices of the pagan cults. Uh, or it could be some other particular problem of women interrupting the meetings. I mean, if they were set up like the Jewish synagogues, even today, I've been to synagogue meetings where all the men are on one side, the women are on the other side. It's an L-shaped room. There's blinds, so the men and women can't even see each other during the meetings. And, uh, you know, if women are shouting out to their husbands, 
hey, what's that mean? Or, hey, what about this? That would be really disruptive. We're just talking to each other uh, uncontrollably. And so he's like, look, ladies, just cool it. If you want to talk to your husband, talk to him at home. So that's how I'm inclined to, to take those verses. Um, some use it to say women are never allowed to speak at meetings, but they don't harmonize 1 Corinthians 11. Order is what he's talking about. He said, do you think God's word originated with you, Corinthians? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? If you claim to be a prophet or think you're spiritual, you should recognize that what I'm saying is a command from the Lord himself. But if you don't recognize this, you yourself will not be recognized. This is Paul citing his apostolic authority, his ability to write scripture. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. The point of this section of the chapter, and all for the building up of the body. Conclusions then. When Christian community gets together, this is a supernatural event. It should be led by the Spirit of God. We're not just doing the same thing we did last time. It's not, it doesn't mean there can't be any order or structure or that structure is unspiritual. But it's just still a time where every one of us believers needs to come ready to be used by God's Spirit, looking to be used by God's Spirit, coming in with the wisdom of God. How can I serve somebody here tonight? How can I build somebody up here tonight? That's what I'm trying to do. And we'll gladly accept limitations for the sake of the others who are there. I don't want to do something that's going to drive people away, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. I want this to be a welcoming place, a place where people can come as they are and receive God's love. So I'll take limitations for that. I'll consider how is this coming off. And the real question is, what role will you play in building up the body? That's the question you've got to answer every single time. Something as amazing as the gathering of 30 people all indwelt by the Holy Spirit happens. And it's awesome. All right, that's 1 Corinthians 14. Next time we've got the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll probably take a couple of weeks on that chapter. All right. Well, that's about enough. Let's pray. Yeah, God, my life has been changed by meetings like this. With Christians getting together, using their gifts. Um, and also how you've taught me to come to meetings like this with uh, not my natural instinct to take, to show off, but to um, lay aside my pride and to give to others. And uh, I know I'm a work in progress, but I thank you for how you're teaching me those lessons. Thanks that you're molding us all, God, into a group that shows your love in supernatural ways, Lord, a love that cannot be explained by mere human energy, but can only be explained by the love of Christ. I pray, too, we'd always be a church that considers um, things not just from the perspective of a Christian, but from a perspective of a non-Christian, tries to be as welcoming as possible and as clear as possible in communicating the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.